that's something we need to move away from and, and say that Kashmir is for Kashmiris and they need to determine for themselves what is the trajectory of their future. They need to determine for themselves what they want to do and how they want to exist in this world. Is that as an independent state? Is that as a territory of India? Is that as a territory of Pakistan? Whatever that future is, it's up to them to decide. In the last few days, as the situation in Kashmir has escalated, we've had to rely on Twitter in order to get what little information we can due to the information blackout there. One of the voices on Twitter that has shined out for me at least is Sana Saeeds. Sana has been actively updating her followers on the ongoings in Kashmir, while also bringing in real narratives from people on the ground and highlighting the work of other journalists who are writing about Kashmir. I am so excited to have Sana on the show today, not only to hear her perspective on Kashmir and other global geopolitics, but also to highlight the work that she does every day as a host and producer at Al Jazeera. Prior to working with Al Jazeera Plus, Al Jazeera's online channel, Sana had pieces featured in publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, Salon, Huffington Post, amongst many others. Her work has tackled a wide range of topics with everything from foreign policy to life as a Muslim in the West to sexuality and civil liberties. Welcome to the show, Sana. Thanks for having me. You did your bachelor's and master's from McGill University prior to entering the world of journalism. How did you decide you wanted to be in journalism and, and be a producer? It's kind of funny how all of that worked out. I've always been very interested in journalism itself. I you know, was involved in the school's paper. I had a column for two years running at the uh, McGill Daily, which is a really great paper. And I, you know, was I had published in local magazines and I was a really avid blogger and I would write about, you know, kind of in my own very snarky, satirical way about campus politics on Facebook in particular back, you know, in the early, two, in like 2005, 2006, when, you know, when they introduced notes, I remember like publishing notes about elections on, on the campus and candidates who were running, commenting on it. So I was always very engaged with the idea of journalism. So talking about what's happening in the world around me. And I think I've always kind of been a very curious person by nature. In particular, I was especially interested in media critique. In 2005, 2006, there were two major things that happened in that time span, which was you had the, quote unquote, the riots in France, where young men of immigrant backgrounds were, you know, quote unquote, rioting in the streets. And then you also had the Danish cartoon con- uh, controversy, which is over the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. And, and there was a huge backlash to that as well. And I remember during both those events being very taken by how the media in particular was framing the conversations in those moments, I really realized what an integral role media plays when it comes to not just like creating the narratives that either humanize or dehumanize us. So I immediately, you know, I kind of started critiquing media coverage and engaging in in kind of um, media analysis. And I did that for quite a few years. You know, my entire goal was to go into law school. Like I was like, I'm going to go into law school. This is what I want to do. And, you know, somehow I ended up realizing that, you know, my real passion was this, was actually holding the media itself accountable. In around 2000, 
at 13, you know, I had been freelancing. I had been published in a few places at that point. I was very active on Twitter. And I had a few folks from Ozavira reach out to me. And they're like, hey, we're starting up this new project in San Francisco. And uh, it's called AJ Plus. And we would, uh, it'd be cool if you want to come down for a couple of weeks and maybe just talk to us and think about what shows we can create, kind of content that we can create together. So I went down for two weeks and about six months later, I was brought on as a producer. I had no production experience, except I just knew, I knew how to write. I knew how to tell a story. I knew how to pick a story. And it kind of took this incredible chance on me. And um, yeah, like that, it was just kind of incredible how that opportunity presented itself and I just took it. So what has been your favorite project that you've worked on, whether it's Al Jazeera Plus, as you mentioned, or elsewhere? And how have you used the power of media to um, change the narratives? Because you, you mentioned that those two events that happened in 2006, they were emblematic of how media can humanize or dehumanize certain communities. How have you used it to humanize certain communities that are mostly dehumanized by media? It's really hard to measure that, right? Like, there's the work that we do, and then all we can do is we hope that just by simply existing as a Muslim, as a woman who is Pakistani, um, who at one point was visibly Muslim when I used to work in the job, at some point you can only hope that the extent to which I am also visible and existing and creating content in this space, that I'm also working to change to really confront these narratives and to change them because I'm the one who's actually now creating the content that has a different narrative, right? So the stories that I'm doing are presenting, like I'm hoping that the stories that I'm doing are able to present the people that I am, you know, doing these stories about, you know, in a way that is humanizing, in a way that runs counter to whatever the mainstream narrative may be on a particular group of people, especially people of color, people who are in areas of conflict where you have, you know, American foreign policy running amok. You know, that's, I would hope that that kind of also comes naturally to the work that I'm doing. Also, I've, you know, I've tried my hardest not only to change the narrative, but it's also about holding bad narratives, holding media accountable, right? So how do we do that? So I've done a lot of media critique stuff still at AJ Plus in the past. I've also really utilized, you know, and I know people can sometimes scoff at this because, you know, Twitter, we kind of make fun of it sometimes, like, oh, it's a silly little platform. It's only journalists who use it. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's a quite, it's a, it's a very powerful tool. I mean, my own life is a testament to that. The fact that I have the job that I have and I got it as a result of, you know, someone reaching out to me over Twitter and saying, hey, I've been following you for a while. Like, do you want to work on this project? I mean, that's that's really powerful for someone who was freelancing for three years and looking for work. So I, I try to use Twitter as well as a means of kind of bringing attention to certain issues that, um, or certain ways of thinking that maybe aren't getting the attention that they deserve. So if there's something that a very popular media anchor has said, which is extremely problematic, whether it's racist, misogynist, whatever it is, or egregious in any way, you know, I want to bring attention to that. But I don't also want to engage in cancel culture, right? Like, I don't think that, unfortunately, sometimes we think accountability is cancel culture, and that's not what I'm interested in. I'm rather more interested in, okay, this person has said this particular thing, and they're in the media. 
how do we hold them accountable? What does that accountability look like? And and for me, it's like if I'm if I'm pushing something out there, if I'm trying to hold someone accountable, it means I'm also offering the counter narrative, right? So if someone has said, oh well, Palestinians are A B C D, and it's absolutely egregious, I want to be able to offer and encourage others to offer the counter narrative to that and say, look, we should be engaging this, um, not justifying it or not legitimizing it, but rather providing that counter narrative. And Sana, I see that you have eye for hard-hitting issues. I've seen the kind of issues that you cover and do an amazing job of it. But how do you deal with trolls on Twitter and elsewhere and still stay focused? Because it, I mean, it, it can be demoralizing at times, no? It's extremely demoralizing. I don't think my industry has done a good job of providing journalists like with the tools to be able to emotionally I mean, forget dealing with it in terms of how do you reach out to Twitter and take care of this? Forget that part. But rather, even dealing with it emotionally, because it does take a huge emotional toll on you. I mean, 2016 was probably one of the worst years when it came for trolls for me. And I just remember at one point, it was basically, I can't remember, I had published a video and on basically debunking how we think about quote-unquote radicalization, right? Because there's this idea that we use the term radicalization so flippantly without actually realizing that there is no set criteria or definition of what it means to be radicalized, right? Like for us, we like, oh yeah, it's just someone who, you know, decided one day they had really bad ideas and then one day decided to act on those bad ideas and hurt people or whatever. But that's not necessarily what radicalization, when it's, you know, especially as it's pursued in the courts or the way that certain people are criminalized through through that terminology, um, that's not necessarily how it's used. So I've done this video kind of debunking what I I said, debunking the myth of radicalization. And I had just this incredible onslaught of trolls that I'd never had up until that point. And it was just getting death threats, getting my face superimposed on violent images, really disgusting images, and just being spammed constantly with this hate and vitriol. And I I didn't know what to do. I just, you know, I I reached my, my company tried to help me out, but there's only so much that they could do as well. You know, I'd reached out to someone at Twitter. They tried to help. Ultimately, all I had to do was wait it out. And I wish that in that moment that I had emotional support to to deal with it. I mean, I did, you know, leave Twitter for a few days or weeks, whatever it was happening. You know, I also didn't want to leave the platform just because I had these people threatening me and whatnot because, you know, then I would be silenced. So it's, it's it's definitely demoralizing. And even recently, you know, as I've been tweeting a lot on the issue of Kashmir and kind of India's re- recent actions there, and the amount of vitriol that I've received, it's really, you know, horrendous. The other day, I finally checked my other folder on, on Twitter for my DMs, and it was just filled with just, like, nasty, nasty messages that just, honestly, I'm like, this has no place anywhere. You know, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. Disagree with me. But, you know, when you start calling me awful things, they start threatening my life, they start threatening family, you know, those type of things. Whether you're a real person or if someone is creating these bots, I mean, I don't know. But it's, you know, that's, it's a lot to deal with. And you have to choose, like, am I going to step away from this and step away from something I'm very passionate about? Or am I just going to have to deal with this when I have to deal with it and just keep moving forward? And it's, that's a really, it's hard. It's really, really hard to do that. I think a lot of us put on a tough face. But at the end of the day, you know, words do hurt. And so do like, especially when they're constantly coming at you and, and, and trying to tear you down. 
Sana, let's talk about Kashmir. For my listeners who might not have a clear understanding of what's going on in Kashmir right now, could you give a brief overview of what's really happening there? And and we will also post links to some reporting that you've done, plus reporting that others have done. But if you could just summarize some of it for us. So again, I'm 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 not an expert on Kashmir. I'm someone who has uh, roots in Kashmir. My family. Um, on both sides is from Kashmir uh, and were part of the families that left the region in the mid-1940s and 47 during uh, the partition years. So I just want to clarify that that is my connection to Kashmir. I currently do not have any family in Kashmir, and so I'm not directly impacted by what's happening there. And I'm not an expert either. I'm just someone who's very passionate about the fact that you have over 7 million people currently on lockdown for over a week without any access to communication, are also in a region, in the Kashmir Valley, where you have 800,000 Indian troops, which is the most militarized zone, which makes it the most militarized zone in the entire world. That's my concern as to what's happening there. What, what also concerns me is that after 70, 71 years, that Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Interior Minister Amit Shah and that entire government decided to revoke, that they decided to revoke a part of their own constitution, Article 370, which allowed Kashmir autonomous governance. And after 70, you know, 70, 71 years, uh, and what that means for Kashmir, because the revocation of that article also means a revocation of another very important article, which is 35A, which prohibits non-Kashmiris from buying the land in Kashmir. And it's what does that mean for the future of Kashmir? And a lot of my Kashmiri friends, activists, academics, they all are saying the same thing, which is that with the revocation of Article 370, which takes away autonomy of Kashmiris to govern themselves, which was enshrined in the Indian constitution, and the fact that also the state of Jammu and Kashmir has now also been downgraded to a union territory. And Sana, what does that mean when you say it has been downgraded to a union territory? What does that signify? I mean, it's, it's essentially a loss of power, no longer a state, right? But sorry to go back to my original point. As I mentioned, my, my Kashmir friends, you know, they've all said that with the revocation of Article 370, you know, Kashmir has ceased to exist. And what you are going to see now, what people are referring to now is essentially the colonization of, of Kashmir, where you're going to see people coming in from elsewhere, buying up land. And, and completely changing the demographics of that region. Now, I want to make it clear that, you know, the, the way the Indian government kind of sells this whole, its move in, in the Kashmir Valley, in Jammu and Kashmir, is that while we're trying to uh, repatriate, so to speak, Kashmiri pundits, who are Kashmiri Hindus, the majority population in Jammu and Kashmir is Muslim, but there is a sizable Hindu minority. Uh, and, and, the, and the Hindu minority is primarily concentrated in the Jammu region. And so in the late 80s and early 90s, um, when there was a, there was an outbreak of massive uh, violence in the Kashmir Valley, you had a lot of uh, Kashmir resistance fighters um, fighting against Indian troops. And there were a lot, thousands of Kashmiri pundits who were forced to flee. And so you have, you know, about a generation of Kashmiri pundits who haven't been able to return home in Kashmir, even though they are welcome to be there. So... For the Indian government, the Indian government's been like, hey, we're just doing this so that we can resettle, sorry, not repatriate, but so that we can resettle 
the the pundits back in Kashmir. But the thing is, is that you know the Indian government has always utilized the pundits as more of a political pawn versus actually caring for whatever you know their well-being in Kashmir as well. It's hard to cover so much history and so much information in a short interview. So thank you so much for doing that. And you're you're absolutely right about how um, the Indian government, which is a Hindu nationalist government at at this point, is trying to use Kashmiri Pandits as a tool to dilute the Muslim-majority state. Kashmir is the only Muslim-majority, predominantly Muslim-majority state within India. And I think what really concerns me is that it runs counter to India's own claims of a secular, democratic nation. And that's something that should concern every Indian. But what I have seen, and and this is something that I want to go back to your tweets, some responses to your tweets about Kashmir have included references that since you, and I'm quoting here, are of Pakistani origin and an Al Jazeera journalist, hatred for India and Hindus is in your blood, unquote. How do you respond to those comments? And I can relate to that because I am also from Pakistan and I feel like every time I broach Kashmir, the general consensus would be she's from Pakistan. So she has some degree of partisanship when she talks about Kashmir. But what we are ignoring is that at this point, I don't have to be a Kashmiri Muslim or a Kashmiri Pandit to lend support to Kashmiris. This is this is not about Pakistan or India or whether Kashmir should, you know, accede to Pakistan or India. It's it's about basic human rights and human dignity, which is being blatantly violated in Kashmir right now. So even if I'm not a Kashmiri Muslim or a Kashmiri Pandit, that's something that I can relate, I can at least lend my support to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen those comments. I've seen that particular comment as well. And it's frustrating because I don't want to always pull the card, but I'm like, for me, it's many layers. First of all, as a human being, right, basic, the fact that you have, again, the most militarized zone in the world with, with almost one million troops stationed in the Kashmir Valley, over seven million people on lockdown for over a week, cut off from their families around the world who've not been able to get in touch with them. In a country where you have this rampant Hindu nationalism on the rise. That's another thing I think people forget is that the issue isn't, right, Hinduism or a Hindu identity or anything of that sort. It's a particular strand of nationalism, which I would say it's more nationalism with Hinduism is kind of just brought into it, right? Where, and especially with Hindutva and RSS and BJP, like the ideologies that they're bringing forward are very much so rooted in fascist ideologies, which, you know, I'm like, we need to have a conversation about this. And so first and foremost, as a human being, you know, I'm appalled at what's happening in Kashmir. Secondly, as someone who has always dreamed of going to Kashmir and learning about my family, knowing the names of my great-great-grandfathers and finding and learning more about them, I'm never going to get to do that now as well. So it's very emotional for me in that sense because I've always wanted to go visit Kashmir. I've wanted to go visit the areas where my family used to live. I've wanted to go look through records and see if I can find, you know, other family members who may still be around, like distant family members who may be in the region. I don't know. I mean, as we all know, partition really 
separated a lot of us from our history, separated a lot of us from our roots. And so for me, it's, yeah, it's an emotional issue because, like, yes, like, I was born in Pakistan. I was raised, like, I know it's Pakistani. I have a Pakistani passport as well. Like, it's not, I mean, it's defunct, but I have a Pakistani passport. Okay. But my parents, my family always, always, always instilled in me a very strong Kashmir identity, always. And so it's never been something that's alien to me, the idea of being Kashmiri and of Kashmir. And it's always been a longing to kind of go there. And, and in, a, in its own way, the idea of also Kashmir has always felt like home. So when someone says to me, like, you just hate Hindus and you just hate India because being anti-Indian and Hindu is in your Pakistani blood, I'm like, no, of course not. Of course not. Not to mention that totally erases the fact that we do have Hindus in Pakistan, which, who, of course, you know, are not well treated. And as Pakistanis, as, like, as, a, as a country, we need to be doing so much better in how we treat minorities, whether they're minorities, like Muslim minorities, so like Shia, Ahmadi, or whether they're, you know, Hindu, Christian minorities. Absolutely, Pakistan needs to be doing better in that. But being a Pakistani doesn't automatically mean that you're going to hate Hindus and you're going to hate Indians. I don't have that expectation from anyone who's Indian that they automatically are anti-Pakistani or anti-Muslim either. You know, what makes me determine that is what you say and what you do. Yeah, and this is not just about being from a certain region. It, again, boils down to even if we were to talk exclusively about India and the fundamental character of Indian democracy, I think that is in jeopardy. And honestly, that's something that which people are not talking about as much. And I would be very curious to know uh, what Indians living in India think because so far the voices that I've heard are mostly in support of revocation of Article 370. And I would be very interested to know what other people are thinking and Indians are thinking um, and what their point of view is on this and how do they see their democracy. But because this is setting a very wrong precedent, this can happen in other states. What What's happened in Jammu and Kashmir could be replicated elsewhere. And that's something that I think every Indian should be concerned about. Absolutely agreed. I mean, like I said earlier, it's absolutely egregious that this government revoked a part of its own constitution. And, you know, earlier you mentioned that this also flies in the face of India's claim to being a secular democracy, because not only does it revoke part of its constitution, but the fact that it's that this will change the demographics of a Muslim-majority state, the only Muslim-majority state that was giving essentially credence to India's uh, claim to being a secular democracy. Exactly. My question then is, not even my question, but I wonder, you know, is this government interested even in upholding that idea anymore? Do they care whether or not they're a secular democracy? Or is the idea, no, we're a Hindu country, we're a Hindu democracy, if it, if it could even be called a democracy when you're revoking, you know, your own constitution and plunging 7 million people into this in, into this kind of a situation? I don't know. And I, and I think, like, Indians who are, and again, there's like 1 billion Indians, right? So, Obviously, the voices that we're also going to see primarily, especially in Indian media, are going to be very much so, I think, favoring the government, uh, uh, you know, government actions versus really, really critiquing it. Because that is there. There are a lot of Indian, Indian Americans. I've had so many people reach out to me and say, thank you for talking about this. Or I just want you to know, like, not all of us support this and so on and so forth. So, but, but I would say, like, any Indian who is celebrating this move of India's move in Kashmir should absolutely be terrified for what that means for the future of their country. 
What does that mean for every other state, you know? Um, what does that mean for minority populations? What does that mean for the Constitution? If an article in the Constitution can be so easily revoked, what does that mean for other articles that protect other communities or other freedoms in India? And it's it's crazy to me that that conversation is not being had in any mainstream way as far as I've seen in India. Emotions on both sides of the border run so high. When when it's it's about Kashmir, somehow it it becomes by default it becomes about Pakistan, and I think there is a lot of warmongering and there is a lot of finger pointing, and I think rationality ceases to exist on both sides, um, which is unfortunate. Hundred percent. I think that for Pakistanis, like I think Pakistanis need to need to stop also saying that. You know, Kashmir is Pakistan. They exactly. To, Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm tired of that. And I, and that's my own family will sometimes say that, too, even though I'm like, what are you doing? But like, you know, I think that that's something we need to move away from and, and say that Kashmir is for Kashmiris and they need to determine for themselves what is the trajectory of their future. They need to determine for themselves what they want to do and how they want to exist in this world. Is that as an independent state? Is that as a territory of India? Is that as a territory of Pakistan, whatever that future is, it's up to them to decide. And I wish Pakistanis would would also, on the whole, kind of calm down with that kind of, that old nationalist fervor that, no, Kashmir is for Pakistan. It's like, no, stop, stop. Absolutely. Be- because what that does is that it takes the conversation away from Kashmiris and what Kashmiris want, and it becomes about India and Pakistan. And that's something that I hope our generation and future generations can change but it's not about pakistan or india it's it's about the the will of kashmiri people whether they are given a say in their political future as stipulated in un security council resolutions or if there is any other solution where they are given the opportunity to decide what they want versus what india or pakistan wants for them 100% i i am so glad you said that because Exactly. Like this issue ultimately is not about India or Pakistan. It's about the well-being and the future of Kashmiris. Like that's what it comes down to. And yes, like India and Pakistan are part of it in the sense that you have this disputed territory, you know, and the fact that you have two, actually you have three, three nuclear powers, right? India, China, and Pakistan who claim parts of this territory or all of the territory. So in that sense, yeah, it's a much bigger issue like when you have three nuclear powers who are like, hold up, you know, like this land is important to us or this is our land or whatever. But that's not what the primary issue here is. The primary issue should be and what should be recognized by Indians and Pakistanis is what is the well-being of Kashmiris and what do Kashmiris want and, and, and not like this is ours. Before I move to another topic that I want to talk about, uh, you shared this article, this op-ed by a Kashmiri Pandit, Dipti Misri. Uh, she is an associate professor of women and gender studies at University of Colorado Boulder. It's a brilliant article. It was written for Al Jazeera. And it talks about nuances of Kashmiri Pandits and what they are feeling and how, if they were to be repatriated, what will that look like? And will it be more often, like, will they be more of like settlers than natives and it's a, it's a great article so i would really encourage everybody to read it 100% and i think it's also important to remember that kashmiri pundits also don't all think the same it's like on one end you have two professors who wrote that article for al jazeera and then on the other spectrum the other end of the spectrum you have someone like 
Anupam Kher, right, who's Kashmiri, you know, who said that the day that Article 370 was revoked, he said it's the happiest day in the life of this Kashmiri boy. It really disappointed me, though. And, and here's why, because I grew up with Bollywood. I think we all did. I, I grew up watching those movies and, you know, idolizing all the Indian actress and stuff. And in Hollywood, although Hollywood is extremely stereotypical and misogynistic in so many ways, but at least when it comes to actors and actresses, at least rhetorically, they they are all for human rights and uh, uh, social justice issues. But Bollywood has really disappointed me in that, uh, that the, the only voices I've heard is like, you know, this is a great thing that's happening. And there is there is no concern for human rights or human dignity in this. You know, I entirely agree. I obviously also grew up watching a lot of Bollywood. I mean, every Friday night uh, growing up, we'd rent movies and we'd watch, you know, every Friday night, watch whatever new movie was available, you know, at our local halal butcher shop <laughs> that also sold uh, or rented out movies back in New York. But now it's it's hard to look away from, I think, the things that we saw happen, even like 10, 15 years ago, which is that, you know, in Hollywood, like, obviously, like, Hollywood is a very problematic industry for many reasons, but but you will see actors and actresses not afraid to, like, go against the United States government, you know, like, there's not this idea that I can't go against my government or that I can't critique certain things and so on and so forth, and yes, there will be massive backlash oftentimes, but there isn't that kind of, like, you know, uh, there is at least that attempt sometimes for people to do that. Whereas in whereas in Bollywood, what you find is that there's just either you're quiet completely or you're vocally in support, and it's bizarre. And I mean, I'm I'm not surprised the way the Bollywood actors have either responded or not responded at all to this whole thing. I'm not surprised whatsoever. But I am, you know, I'm still really like, okay, I really am done with this industry. A, I haven't really watched much, which I've liked in recent years. But also, I'm like, I'm tired of supporting an industry that essentially is forcing an ideology on its viewers but on its audiences and also on its you know on on the people who are within the industry so even if you're a muslim in the industry you still have to ascribe to certain ideas and you need to like quote unquote almost hindufy yourself in certain ways which i'm like you know or even the way that pakistani actors and actresses have been treated in the industry is really just awful. And it's like, how much longer can you keep supporting this? And then on the other hand, I look at like Pakistani, you know, there are two Pakistani actresses. Um, one was uh, Mewish Hayat and the other one, her name completely just escaped me. Um, but she's Canadian Pakistani. I think it's Armina. Armina? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Armina, right? Both of them came out with statements like saying like, hey, this is really not okay. Like, you know, that what is happening, we should be thinking about the Kashmiri people. We should be careful. Like, we don't want war. We should, you know, like, they actually weren't afraid to take on. I haven't seen, I'm sure other boxing actors have also made statements. Those are two ones that really kind of stuck out to me. But, you know, I I don't, I used to consume a lot of Pakistani uh, pop culture stuff, haven't in a little while. But I really appreciated that in terms of that these Pakistani actors and actresses are not afraid of coming out. Now, mind you, of course, they are coming out in a way that's still in line with, like, what Pakistani public's opinions are. Yeah. But I still did appreciate that they weren't afraid to take on a position. And especially when that could mean that you're not going to have any opportunities in the future in Bollywood, you know? Mm. <laughs> Traditional ger- journalism, as we see it, has often been, you know, characterized as very white and male. 
do you think that new forms of journalism, and I'm talking about like blogs and video journalism, are able to create space for those identities which which are not really white or male, which don't fall into those categories? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's one of the most powerful things about social media in particular is that it opened up avenues for people who otherwise were marginalized in this industry to maybe get noticed. The industry has a long way to go. Most newsrooms are not that diverse. I'm super blessed to be in a newsroom, which is so incredibly diverse. It, I mean, we can always, always do better. But I think we do a pretty damn job in our newsroom in terms of showcasing diversity and, you know, diversity in terms of background, religion, ethnicity, sexuality, orientation, even perspectives. Um, we don't necessarily all agree with one another, but we really do. So we really do represent like a, an array of people in this newsroom. But I do think that, you know, you're, there are more and more people of color, minorities, go, women in general, going into the industry because I think. Like, it's just because now we know that's possible for us, right? I think when I was a teenager, I don't think, I'm trying to remember, like, I don't think I thought I could have ever really be doing what I'm doing now, especially on camera work and stuff like that. I don't think I ever saw myself. I mean, I never necessarily wanted to, but I don't think I could have even seen myself as doing that, even if I wanted to. I mean, yeah, I remember, like, as a kid, I really liked Barbara Walters. I'm like, wow, it'd be so cool to be like Barbara Walters. But... (laughs) I was like, I'm not Barbara Walters. I don't look like that. You know, I. But I think now, with, with as time has gone by, we're like, no, we actually can absolutely be in these spaces, and we can absolutely get these opportunities. When you look at newsrooms at the managerial level, that may be less diverse than, you know, the journalists who are doing the nitty gritty work as well. So I, I think the industry itself has a long way to go in terms of diversifying. I, another huge issue we have within the industry is that it's a, oftentimes most people in newsrooms are coming from well-off backgrounds because journalism is not an industry that pays well. So if you've had to hustle for a few years, it's nice. You know, a, a lot of people have like a, a financial of some sort you know, that that's there. So it's also important to take that into perspective. And, and again, at Azure Plus, we have, you know, we do have that diversity here too. Like not everyone comes from the same socioeconomic background or upbringing. And it does change the way you cover stories. And ultimately, newsrooms need to realize that diversity, and not just simply in terms of color, but also in terms of socio- like the socioeconomic class, ideology, religion, orientation, all these things, it ultimately lends itself to better content, better coverage. It doesn't take away from coverage, it improves it. And it can actually widen your audience. And it blows my mind that people don't see it since everyone loves to think in a business model i'm like isn't that a good business model when you're bringing more people in yeah and talking about your work sana you're working on a video series called pop americana what is that so i'm super excited about this i've been working on it for a little while um because we had some hiccups along the way so we've got five episodes so far and in the first season we're gonna have 10 episodes we're gonna release the first five episodes take a short break and come back with five more episodes. Pop Americana is a show that looks at American pop culture in from a very kind of, you know, a little bit of a nerdy, fun uh, perspective. So it's kind of like a video essay, short doc, all rolled into one. Um, and we kind of look at, you know, the tagline for the show is 
the unfamiliar side of everything familiar. And so we kind of, you know, I'll give you an example. So one of the very first episodes that we are going to be publishing and hopefully we'll be publishing by end of September is actually called The Very Radical Politics of Dolly Parton's Nine to Five. So in that episode, what we do is we look at Dolly Parton as this radical working class icon and how her music actually is a testament to the working class Americans of all different backgrounds. Um, and so we actually look at the movie Nine to Five that she was in, the film Nine to Five, and the album Nine to Five and Odd Job. And we kind of like dissect it all. Like it's a pretty mm. crazy video. You know, we, we talk about Karl Marx in it and, and his theory of worker alienation. It's nerdy. It's fun. So stuff like that is, is kind of what we're trying to do is try to get our particular audience really interested in looking at pop culture in an intelligent way. Like it doesn't have to be celebrity gossip. Pop culture is very intelligent as well and intellectual if you allow yourself to look at it that way. That's such an interesting idea. And where can people find it? Is it like, is it going to be on Al Jazeera Plus? Yeah, so it's going to be on our AJ Plus English channel. So if you want to go search AJ Plus, so the plus sign and English, um, it should pop up on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter as well, AJ Plus, which is AJ and then P-L-U-S. And yeah, it should pop up. And hopefully by end of September, we'll start releasing some episodes. If you want to also on my own Instagram, I'm going to be publishing some behind the scenes stuff in the next little while. And my Instagram is Sana Face, so S-A-N-A-F-A-C-E. And I'm hoping that, yeah, like we, we really want also a really engaged audience because I don't want this to be a show where people are just listening. I want people to be engaged and contributing to the show. So I'm pretty excited about it. I think people are going to be not expecting this from Al Jazeera, especially. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I want to ask you about Muslim community in the U.S. And like our community is at a critical juncture here in the U.S. I read somewhere that you said that you're concerned that the Muslim community in an attempt to assimilate will become entrenched in the establishment and its institutions. What do you mean by that? And why do you take issue with that? My worry is that in terms of what I see, I know when I say Muslim community, I mean, I think we need to also qualify that. And the Muslim community in the United States is made up of many different communities yeah. who have different politics, different backgrounds, so on and so forth. So I do want to clarify that. I think in general direction of Muslim, Muslim-led politics in this country, I mean, I think what we've, there, there's been a bit of a divergence, right? You've seen Muslims who've gone kind of more on the organizing end of things, grassroots, holding the trying to hold the government accountable for its policies that you know the, the post 9-11 policies that no one was held accountable for right yeah. the aftermath of the patriot act you know all those years of surveillance the fact that we have had and still have entrapment cases in our community the fact that the government program countering violent extremism also known as cve which was you know supposed to be countering all violent extremism but over focused on muslim communities you know, we have people holding these things accountable and calling it out and saying we need to we need to do something about this. We need to push the government and, and, and other people who are associated with these institutions that have criminalized our communities and in turn also criminalized other communities that intersect with ours. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the black community, right, there's a sizable black Muslim community that we need to be critical and hold them accountable, you know, these institutions that have criminalized our, our various communities. And then on the other hand, you have another strand. I think that they're much more willing to, we have to work 
within the system and with the system to change it. But the thing is, is that what we know from history is that that's not necessarily how it works. That the greatest radical change that comes to any society is one that's coming from people and not coming from the government. Because the status quo works for the government. It always works for the government. Because that, that there's a reason why it's the status quo. And I think that you have this split about what are what are our lines. And I think, you know, what worries me a lot is the Muslim political leadership at some point may not have too many lines left. What worries me is that the, uh, that the Muslim political class may come to a point where there's not a line left. You know, it's like, what are we actually willing to sacrifice to get a seat at the table? Because the thing is, I don't really care about getting, I mean, to, to paraphrase Desmond Tutu, I don't really care about getting a seat at the table. I want where I'm going to be served some crumbs. I want the whole damn menu of my rights. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that quote. And I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but I love that quote because I'm like, yes, we fought so hard to get a seat on the table. But what has it actually gotten us? Islamophobia is, you know, at an all time high hate crimes against Muslims are increasing. They're not going away. The rhetoric against Muslims is increasing. And it's because we think, we try to think that, oh, well, Islamophobia is about just slurs and just this, whereas Islamophobia is an institution that's tied also to, like, American foreign policy. It's tied to anti-Black racism as an institution in this country. Mm. I feel like we, much of our political leadership class has fallen away from that. Now, that doesn't include people like, for instance, Rashida Taleb and Congresswoman Rashida Taleb and Ilhan Omar in particular, who I think who have surprised the crap out of me for being really incredible. And they excite me in terms of I think they're showing that, wait a second, no, you can be a Muslim in politics and really like really go above and beyond and push back in a way that no one thought they could push back. The things that Ilhan Omar has said while being a congresswoman, absolutely blows my mind. I never in my life thought I would see, you know, in this day and age, a congresswoman saying the things that she's saying, and it's exciting. I have not been so excited about a politician since I don't (laughs) even know when. So she actually gave me a bit of hope, you know, where I was kind of feeling like, oh my God, what direction are we heading in? I do think there's going to be a split in the community, and I, I mean, that split is already there, I think that Muslim Americans in general, we need to learn a lot from the black community, the black Muslim community, the overall black community. I think we need to learn that, like, how much it's a struggle. It's always going to be a struggle and that we need to we need to be focusing much more on organizing at the grassroots than simply trying to get a seat at the table, whatever that even means anymore. Because sometimes getting that seat at the table means you're throwing everyone else under it. Yeah, but I think, Sana, it has a lot to do with what generation I think we are talking about. And Ilhan Omar is an exception. I think second generation, third generation Muslims have a strong sense of identity. I have interviewed so many and I have what I have seen is that they are much more vocal and they are not afraid to talk their mind. But when you, when you talk about first generation Muslims, I think they are somehow still invested in their countries of origin and they have this transient approach or mentality to living in the U.S. So first, I think they have to own the fact that this this is their country now. And that's why if they feel as invested, then they will be more vocal. And at least that's how I see it. I completely understand. I think what you also have, though, in the Muslim community is, yes, you do have people who are like, yes, I'm an American, I'm this. I don't think we should have to choose because the thing is, at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian. 
but as a Canadian, I don't, I've never felt the need to erase or distance myself from, you know, my country of origin, Pakistan either, right? Like, I've never felt that need. And instead, it was rather the idea that these two can, these two identities can subsist together. And it also doesn't negate my ability to also be civically engaged in Canada. I think what you find in the United States is that you do have a very particular class of Muslims, a very particular demographic. You know, but, but I, I do get what you're saying, because here's what I'm trying to say. It's important to be 100% invested in what's happening in Pakistan, but then also be 100% invested in what's happening in America. And, and I think it's also a question of what does it mean also to be 100% invested, right? Like, what does that mean? Because does that mean, like, for me, what that means is that you are also not afraid to be critical of these institutions. Exactly, and that, exactly. Like, you know, exactly. Like, you're not afraid to be um, critical of these institutions, that you're not also simply trying to whitewash these institutions or saying, well, the only way we can change these institutions is if we work within them, which is not how it works either. Again, we have, and the history of this country is a testament to the fact that the mo that the that the only thing that really brought about radical change came from people themselves, yeah. right? And then it only only then did it get up to where it put pressure on the government, where it put you know pressure on the court to change the law. Everything from the abolition of slavery to women, first white women getting the right to vote, then black women getting the right to vote, to uh, I'm trying to, like just you know even eventually with the United States pulling out of the Vietnam War, pressure on the government from people, not necessarily from politicians, right? Absolutely. Not necessarily from a think tank. It was coming from everyday people who were like, this status quo is killing people. It is hurting people. It is it is oppressive. It is, you know, totalitarian and we need to change it. And like I said, the, for the government, any government, the status quo is the status quo because that's what it works for it. And so it's up to us to be able to actually push back against that. Absolutely. So, Sana, before I wrap up, I always ask my guests this question. If you were to describe America in, in a word or a phrase or sentence, what, whichever way, how would you describe it? Hmm, that's a really good question. If I were to describe it, I'd say a sentence or a word. I don't know, because I guess I'm torn because the United States of America, this land in the United States of America belongs to other people. But we're here now, so our job is to protect all those other people who've had to suffer as a result of it as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sana. This was great. And I am really impressed with your journalism. By the way, I had a guest on my show like a few weeks back. Uh, his name is Basim Usmani. And he said that when I interview you, I should tell you that you are one of the most brilliant and smart people that he's met. So I am just telling you that because he asked me to tell you that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to text him right now and be like, Basim, you're just a sweetheart. <laughs> so thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. Can't wait. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we are on Twitter at Chronicles Alien and Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Come back next week when we have another amazing, inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>